Could a revival of our beleaguered mining sector be the answer to South Africa's increasingly desperate unemployment crisis? Could e-commerce, the alleged nemesis of brick-and-mortar development, turn out to be a boon for at least one class of commercial real estate? And could independent power producers bring an end to our electricity woes in spite of the decrepit state of our national grid. All coming up in the next 30 minutes. Stick around. This is No Ordinary Wednesday. It's an in-depth look at the events and trends moving markets, shaping the economy and changing the game. Welcome. I'm Jeremy Max. Now, the global commodities boom has seen South Africa's trade surplus soaring to record highs. With that, our once vibrant mining sector seems to have emerged phoenix-like from the ashes of policy uncertainty, labor strife and underinvestment to lead the economic recovery. I'll ask the head of equity research at Investec Corporate and Institutional Banking, Nkateko Matonzi, if the commodity supercycle is sustainable and whether the sector could again become the large scale employer that it once was. Then, demand, rents and yields in Europe's logistics real estate market are all at record highs. I'll ask Joint Chief Executive of the Investec Property Fund, Andrew Wooler, what's behind the surprising surge and why it's relevant to South African investors. And finally, in this week's burning question, with electricity generation opening up to the private sector, can the country's grid infrastructure stand up to the expected increase in capacity? Equity analyst at Investec Corporate and Institutional Banking, Herbert Kadebe, is the man with the answer. But first, a very warm welcome to Nkateko Matonzi. Nkateko, welcome to No Ordinary Wednesday. Let's start with the global commodities boom. Surging commodity prices since the start of the year have led the rebound of South Africa's economy. Good news, it's lifted our trade surplus to record highs. I guess the question is, how long can we expect this good fortune to continue? Okay, hi, Jeremy. Maybe let me start by saying the key commodities for South Africa at present includes coal, which is the largest industry by production volume and even value until 2021 was overtaken by the platinum boom metal. Obviously, the platinum boom metals as a basket are important to South Africa. Gold, iron ore are also significant value contributors. I am personally very excited about metals such as manganese, which South Africa hosts 80% of the world's known resources. And this is a future metal that is critical to the energy transition that the world is embarked on. So talking about the trade surplus and looking at South Africa's export commodity basket, the metals that have had the highest increment, if we look at spot prices compared to, say, five years ago, is rhodium, palladium, and recently coal. Three months ago, I would have told you the largest increment gain is from rhodium, palladium, and iron ore. We have seen a significant pullback on the iron ore price as well as the PGM basket in the past few months. But at the same time, export coal prices increased to record levels, hopefully moderating the impact of lower iron ore and PGM basket on ACS export commodity basket. So it's a good question. For how long do we expect this good fortune to continue? And I think it's all about the long-term drivers of commodity consumption. And the unfolding global energy transition and carbon neutrality will be front and center, in our view. The transition will drive demand for green metals and is already constraining investment for fossil fuels and commodities that do not necessarily benefit from this transition. 
the higher demand for green commodities will be positive for their prices. But the constrained investment in fossil fuels could also be positive for their prices, particularly because the transition is likely to take time. So, in a nutshell, what I'm saying is these interesting times could very well last ever longer. So you've listed for us the standout performers. Going forward then, are you seeing any other opportunity? Yeah, no, certainly. So just looking at 2021, I mean, we have seen a stellar price performance from the energy commodities as a cluster. Export thermal coal has increased by just over 180% since the beginning of the year. Natural gas is breaking records right now. Oil has increased by just over 60%. And who, who would have said? Because these are seen to be dirty commodities. They all benefited from the economic recovery from COVID-19 and constrained supply due to lack of investments, as well as the reliability of renewable sources of energy that is still not at desirable level. It is also commodities like lithium, spodumene, lithium, spodumene that have shut the lights off in this year, benefiting from the accelerating electric vehicle production, particularly in China and Europe. So in terms of opportunities coming to the question, yeah, actually, the energy commodities could very well remain strong until the end of the winter season in the Northern Hemisphere due to seasonal demand. I cover the platinum gold metals, and I think they could also surprise as the semiconductor chip shortages start to ease. So those are the two for me. It's the energy commodities and the platinum gold metals that could still surprise in this year. All right. I want to test you with this thinking, if I can. As infrastructure and utilities as well, I guess anything from cars to factories become increasingly automated. The demand for electronic components is obviously going to increase. Surely commodities are going to benefit from that trend. Certainly. So for us, we think copper is the one metal that benefits from automation and electrification. And that's because uh, copper is an excellent conductor of electricity and, and heat. So copper is certainly the metal to watch um, in the future. And the electrification of vehicles, depending on the battery technology of choice, nickel, cobalt, manganese, graphite, lithium, the, the list is a bit longer, they could benefit. Uh, manganese is important to South Africa by virtue of our number one global position in its resources. Um, there is currently a global shortage of semiconductors due to the increasing automation trend. So even silicon, which is used to produce semiconductors, is important. So the boom then has revived the sector. So my next question to you, what are the chances that we're going to see a resurgence in the mining sector? And obviously the follow-up to that would be, could it again become a large-scale employer? So I think maybe let me start it this way. Exploration is important. We do not believe the next commodity super cycle will be the tide that lists all boats. It is specific commodities that will benefit. Probably the ones that I have mentioned. For, for the South African mining sector to reclaim its former position, we would need to be mining a selective portfolio of commodities. And some of them we currently do not have significant reserves on a relative basis of cost. Mechanization is also important for global competitiveness and cost management. 
So direct labor intensities are unlikely to return to historical levels. But the second sectors that will support the mechanized and the digitalized mining industry may be where employment is actually created. So it's a completely different skill set, in other words. So there hasn't been a lot of investment into mining in recent years. Give us a sense of what the stumbling blocks are and where do the labor unions factor into this? Are they likely to throw a spoke in the wheel, given that you've also referenced the growing trend of mechanization? So mining is cyclical in nature, very difficult to invest during the downtime in the past few years were a little bit difficult for the mining sector in general. I think in the case of South Africa, regulatory certainty may have played a part. The commodities attracting capitals are those that benefit from the transition I have spoken about. They require a long-term view. Other mining countries have attracted higher exploration spend compared to South Africa. In terms of labor union, it's a little bit difficult to judge and even a little bit difficult for me to comment on. But I think what I want to say is shared value is important, especially during the good times. But a good appreciation that mining cyclical is important. South Africa also needs to compete globally. So I hope there is an appreciation of all these factors by all the key stakeholders. And that's where we are going to leave it. And I'm going to thank Nkateko Matonzi, Head of Equity Research at Investec Corporate and Institutional Banking. In just a moment, in conversation with Andrew Wooler, Joint Chief Executive of Investec Property Fund, about what's driving demand for logistics real estate, particularly in Europe. But first, a reminder that a new episode of No Ordinary Wednesday drops every fortnight. Don't miss it. Subscribe to Investec Focus Radio SA wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the channel, please rate us. So, hello, Andrew, and welcome to No Ordinary Wednesday. I'm going to get straight into it. Investment into the European logistics sector reaching a record 22.5 billion euro during the first half of 2021, uh, a 60% increase on the H1 five-year average. Maybe the good starting point for us then is what is driving this growth? Yeah, Jamie, I think um, there are a few things playing out in Europe at the moment. Uh, I think in some ways COVID acted as an accelerator uh, for some of the structural changes, but you have a you you've got very strong tailwinds from a uh, supply and demand perspective. Demand obviously being driven by e-commerce and uh, and the take up and penetration in Europe, and there's just a there's a dearth or lack of supply of new real estate coming onto the market for big logistics distributors to occupy. So those two things combined are, are driving potential and future rent, rental growth and um, and strong yields and and so capital markets across the world are looking to enter the market and take advantage of that. So let's bring it into the South African space if we can. It's been called the property industry's best kept secret, but why should the European logistics real estate market be on the radar for investors uh, in our neck of the woods? Yeah, so it's a, I think it's a good question. You know, certainly the way that we've looked at, at things from an investor property fund perspective is accessing markets uh, based on, on real estate fundamentals. 
looking for that revenue growth opportunity as opposed to just uh, you know stabilized yield. Um, and that European or Western European logistics market certainly presents that opportunity to us. From a South African investor's perspective, access to those kinds of markets can be gained, obviously, through the various listed markets across the globe, but um, on much, much tighter yields and, and typically on a more core and development focus. I mean, our strategy across Europe is on, on a core plus value add uh, strategy. We look to unlock or take some risk, manage that risk, and then unlock value um, over time. And, and so, you know, having an entry point through, say, an IPF into that market at the pricing and yields that we're seeing uh, certainly is attractive. Hard currency earnings, you know, developed nations, proper infrastructure across those Western uh, geographies. So, yeah, a strong place, to, strong place to have some rands invested. Let's look forward, if we can, the growth in e-commerce. Is it likely to be sustained or will physical retail enjoy a resurgence now that the worst of the lockdown appears to be behind us? Yeah, so we think um, certainly if you look at, at the stats across the US and the UK and you compare that to what's played out in Europe over the last five to 10 years, Europe has always lagged. Uh, the former and and your penetration rates or your share of wallet in the US and the UK has been significantly ahead of where Europe has been. Europe has started to catch up and that market share in terms of e-commerce market share has certainly grown, but nowhere near the same sort of levels that you're seeing in the UK and the US. And and that is ultimately what's driving a lot of what what's playing out in terms of the capital markets in, in Europe. If you look at what happens once a user or a consumer has gone online and used e-commerce uh, a couple of times, it becomes very, very sticky. And so, you know, it doesn't tend to be a trend. It, it tends to be something that sticks and in, increases over time. And people then spend more and more time shopping online as opposed to high street. We're certainly not calling the death of the high street, but the way that the e-commerce penetration is taking place across Europe is very, very strong. It's forecast to continue to grow um, rapidly over the next five to seven years across most of our core markets. And with the need to both fulfill orders and then obviously the returns, uh, that will continue, we think, to drive the need for warehousing space across across Europe. I'm correct in saying that you've recently hosted Investec's Property Fund Pan-European Logistics Conference. Some fairly significant and high-profile investors, occupiers and owners on your panel. Where is their headspace? What are some of the challenges they're facing? We had a good session with, with guys across the sector, ranging from advisors into the buy and the sell side from a capital markets perspective and then, um, and then from an occupier perspective. And maybe if you start on the latter, um, it, it is about getting access to space. So, you know, the market has certainly shifted. We call it uh, the Amazon effect, where Amazon has effectively gone up. I think last year they took somewhere between 40 and 50 percent of the space that was available across Europe, they took up. And so it's forcing your logistics uh, companies, 3PLs, to effectively speculate on space as opposed to having contracts you know, on a back-to-back basis. That's the first time we've seen that, that happen. And, and the challenge for them is if they're unable to secure space, they're unable to obviously grow their market share or, or get hold of those contracts or for full contracts. So there is a massive amount of competition for warehousing space across Europe. The supply uh, certainly is not coming on as fast as, as an occupier would like it. And um, and even, you know, the new supply is typically built to suit. So there's very little speculative supply coming on stream that gives these occupiers access to space as in when their business builds up. So I think that was certainly an interesting takeout. And then from a, a capital markets perspective, an investor perspective, one is obviously sort of in our shoes, it's access to, to good stock or, or good real estate at what we would call appropriate uh, pricing. 
certainly challenging to find value if you just look at it on a snapshot basis, but you're certainly buying into the future growth of that sector. And then I think for new capital coming in, they're finding it very difficult to gain access to platforms of scale, management teams on the ground. Um, Certainly there's more capital around than management. So interesting to see how players across Europe, US and, and Asia are thinking about how they access these kinds of opportunities, these kinds of platforms as they look to deploy capital off of their balance sheets. Andrew, I just want to finish our conversation by coming back to warehousing, if we can. Uh, You spoke about the situation in Europe. Are we seeing the same type of unprecedented demand uh, in this country? Uh, Jamie, I think the the dynamics in South Africa are are very different. Certainly, the logistics market here is one that we like to be invested in, but, but it's not seeing the same supply and demand dynamics that you're seeing playing out across Europe. So e-commerce penetration rates here, albeit you know the, the, the stats are showing um, significant increases and, and share of wallet, it's still very, very small and doesn't really make a dent in the broader retail space. And then from a supply perspective, you know you don't have the same sort of constraints that you've got in Europe. Much easier to get hold of land here, easier planning, consent, and that kind of thing. But certainly is a market where you've got to get you, whoever controls the land effectively uh, you know, has, has the opportunity to build out. So it's a space that we like in South Africa, but for very, very different reasons. Typically, much longer dated leases with blue chip tenants um, underpinning that. So it's a very long income uh, profile as opposed to Europe where we're looking to buy or take on a little bit of risk and manage it, manage it that way. And I'm going to leave it there. The Joint Chief Executive Officer of Investec Property Fund, Andrew Wooler, thank you for joining me on No Ordinary Wednesday. For more insight and to watch videos from the Pan-European Logistics Conference, I invite you to visit investecproperty.com. In every episode of No Ordinary Wednesday, we pick a question about the world of money that's been on our listeners' minds, and we'll do our very best to answer it. If you've got such a question, I invite you to go to investec.com forward slash now. That's investec.com forward slash N-O-W and share your conundrum with us. And this week we ask, can the country's grid infrastructure stand up to the expected increase in capacity from independent power producers. Herbert Cudabay, welcome to No Ordinary Wednesday. Now, the 100 megawatt news is not the only government initiative aimed at addressing the energy crisis. The Integrated Resource Plan of 2019, that's government's energy roadmap, I guess, seeks to add 30 gigawatts of capacity to the grid by 2030, sourced from independent power producers. So, Herbert, my first question to you then is whether our creaking transmission and distribution infrastructure is going to be able to handle this new capacity that I've just referred to? Uh, Jeremy, the short answer is no. The generation capacity of the country is concentrated in the north. Think Mpumalanga, think uh, Limpopo, and so is our infrastructure. Now, on the other hand, our renewables potential is strongest in the south. So you are thinking of Western Cape, Eastern Cape, and Northern Cape. So if you're thinking wind, you are thinking the coastal line and for sun, think of our mini desert in the Northern Cape. So if we are to maximize this uh, renewables capacity, we need to invest uh, in infrastructure in those areas. Put bluntly, our grid is weakest or least developed in the area where our renewables potential is highest. 
So I suppose that begs the question then, how much money in total does ESCOM need to upgrade its infrastructure? And perhaps more importantly, uh, where's it going to come from? The 2020 Transmission Development Plan outlines $118 billion to develop the transmission system. But this is silent on funding. Currently, there is no allocation for this in the fiscal. And with the looming corporate action, i.e. to split ESCOM, we're going to have to wait. But I think it's worth noting or flagging that the world is eager to assist us with funding in transforming and decarbonizing our grid. So put short, that is still open as to where the funding will come from. Now, you've recently released a report. It's entitled Energy RSA. If I read this correctly, it explores initiatives to address the country's power crisis. And it also talks about another, and I'll quote you, dive into darkness caused by the current baseload issues that ESCOM is experiencing. Set the scene for me. What's happening? So I think uh, the issues with ESCOM, it's the coming together of three things there. You've got aging infrastructure. You've got, uh, or at least I've had, uh, erratic uh, maintenance and uh, mismanagement of funds as well. So starting with uh, the infrastructure, close to 25% of ESCOM's installed capacity is due for retirement in this uh, decade. Then you've got um, the maintenance where Maintenance spend has varied, or let's rather say ranged between uh, $10 to $20 And if you've got aging infrastructure, you are expecting some linear or parabolic increase, not up and down over the past uh, decade. And then you've got the mismanagement of funds. I think uh, the state capture narrative just comes to mind well-documented that the funds were uh, mismanaged. Herbert, there is, of course, a strategy, isn't there? There were plans to split ESCOM into three distinct entities responsible for, and correct me if I'm wrong, generation, transmission, and distribution. Is this on track, and is this the right approach? So in terms of timing, I think it's all about political will. I think the political will is there. But as to exactly when this will play out, I think uh, COVID has uh, thrown suspender in all the processes that or plans that everyone uh, had. But I think it will make uh, managing the organization easier and perhaps make it easy to fund some of the projects required to get uh, the overall grid, be it generation, transmission, up to date. Because then uh, you, you exactly know where those funds are going and perhaps then you can begin to think of creative ways to uh, reward the capital that requires to be deployed. All of that, of course, is in the future. So let's talk about a holding strategy right now then. So increasing the embedded self-generation threshold to 100 megawatts, as we've discussed, could result in uh, 5 gigawatts of capacity, 85 billion rand in investment, according to that Energy RSA report. But in the interim, companies no doubt will have to invest in building their own power plants until the transmission dilemma is resolved. Is that an accurate interpretation? That is correct. I think the status quo of increasing load shedding and just more expensive power from ESCOM is a incentive enough for those that are able to move away from the grid to make the investment. But also, I think it's important to highlight that it's not all the doom and gloom. We've got a good renewable um, potential across the country. So if you've got a plot of land next to you that is unutilized, 
it's a no-brainer. You put up your 100 megawatts and you get going because you'll be able to reduce the bill on electricity. I'm sure you are aware that we had a double-digit increase in electricity in uh, in July. And while you while you wait for the infrastructure to come up, if you are able to put up some capacity, you, there is no reason why you shouldn't do so. If anything, a good enough incentive to do so. Just a final question, and I'm glad you used the phrase reduce the bill. Electricity costs over the past nine years have gone up by something like 120%. That's 2.4 times faster than inflation. More broadly then, and this is a final question to you, what is on the cards to reduce the cost of power if there's anything at all? I really want to be optimistic about this one, but it's a numbers game, and I don't have good news on this one. So the countries with the highest renewable energy capacity per capita tend to have the higher residential electricity prices, unfortunately. So that brings Germany to mind. That brings the likes of Denmark and Spain to mind. Decarbonizing the grid is not cheap. There is capital that needs to be deployed. With time, this may change as the renewables become cheaper and cheaper. Yes, already over the last 10 years, you're probably looking at a 90% decline in some of the technologies. But as things stand, the dirty uh, energy from uh, coal and other fossil fuels is still on the cheaper side as we begin to put in uh, renewables. So it's, government is still going to have to subsidize the price. And right now, most of today, you've got high coal prices, high oil prices, high gas prices, uranium has had a run too. So it, in the short term, it looks like a one-way street up. And that's where we are going to leave it on that uh, fairly somber note. I appreciate your time. Herbert Karabay, Equity Analyst at Investec Corporate and Institutional Banking. Thank you for joining me on No Ordinary Wednesday. If you want to read that full Energy RSA report, you can visit focus.investec.com. And that brings us to the end of this episode of No Ordinary Wednesday. Please join us again on the 27th of October as we continue our discussion on money trends shaping your world. We've lined up another great panel of experts. So if you haven't yet subscribed, search for Investec Focus Radio Essay wherever you get your podcasts and hit that subscribe button. Until next time, goodbye from me, Jeremy Maggs and the entire Focus Radio team. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendations. Investec Limited and subsidiaries, authorized financial service providers, registered credit providers, and long-term insurer.